So John chapter 9 is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. And I could seriously do a four or five part sermon series on just John chapter 9. The, one of the reasons is because biblically the concept of being blind is so often referred to the lost man, the sinner. And so there's a lot of symbolism of blindness to the sinner who has not been saved. And in John chapter 9, we have this entire chapter that's on nothing but blindness. And so there's this tremendous amount of wealth inside of this passage that, that if we were able to spend a lot of time in it, there's a lot of things we can learn about salvation. And by way of introduction this morning, I just want us to acknowledge that uh, and consider, maybe word it that way, the difficulty with making a blind man see. It is literally impossible. And yet it is utterly needful that God would open the eyes of blinded hearts so that they can see. This is such an important lesson for spiritual leaders to learn. Pastors, teachers, anybody that's got enough courage and uh, integrity about your faith to be sharing your faith with others and be a true witness. This is a really important principle for us to learn. That what needs to happen is blind people need to see. But we can't make people do that. And so we need God to do that for us. But for a lot of Christians, their, their teaching, their preaching, their sharing of the gospel, it's similar to a fool who grabs a blind man by the hand and walks him up to a wall and begins explaining some beautiful painting. And you explain it excellently. The blind man says, I still can't see it. And so you get mad and you just yell a little bit louder. The blind man says, I still can't see it. A lot of us as Christians, this is kind of the way that we do what we do. We think that somehow by simply having well-crafted sermons, well-put-together song sets, good experiences for church, that somehow that's going to make people see. It cannot and it will not. And for those of us that can honestly see this, it teaches us there is this unbelievable, unexpressible need that God would do what we cannot. That no matter how good we do it, we need the Holy Spirit to do the supernatural work of opening people's eyes and ears. It'll change the way that you pray about your services. It'll change the way you pray about your messages. It'll change the way you pray about putting together your song sets. It'll change the way that you witness and share your faith. When you understand you are literally trying to share truth with somebody that is deaf and blind, we need the Holy Spirit to show up. 
It's actually, you know, and, and I know most people in the pew don't think in these terms and don't think about this, but it's actually, it, it makes what I do weird. Like my job is to show up this morning and if I'm really, if I have the heart of God, what I really want to see is people's eyes opened and their ears open. That's what I want to see, right? And I understand I've got a congregation of folks, most of you in front of me, not all of you, but most of you are probably saved. And so I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to waste your time. I want to make sure that this morning and every time we show up to worship that there's some direction for you, that there's, that there's, lear, there's learning of the Word of God that is applicable to your life. But let's just be honest. If I could only speak to one group of people this morning, let's just let's say it was one, who would I want to speak to? Those who already see or the blind? Those who already hear or the deaf? That's who I'd want to speak to, right? And so I'm in this odd position where what I want to do is, is show blind people things and, 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 and help deaf people hear, and yet I recognize I can't do that. And so there's this great dependency dependency upon God like God open open people's eyes open people's ears it would help for the church to recognize this as well so that you would pray that your leaders uh, number one always keep this before us and we don't forget about this great truth but when you pray for services you have an understanding of what we're praying for we're praying for supernatural work that's what we're praying for we're not just praying for good services we're not just praying like God help the music go well this morning God helped Joplin to really preach well this morning. That's not what we're praying for because the music can go awesome and the preaching can go well as far as, you know, you know being an oratory speaker and saying things well and it coming across with, with clarity. All that can happen and not a single person that's blind be able to see. And so this is what we as a church are called to when it talk about winning the lost is, is helping the blind see. And so there's some lessons that we can learn in this huge chapter that's about only that, helping the blind to see, that I want us to look at together this morning. The first thing that I want to note is real simple, and that is that Jesus alone holds the cure. There is nobody that can heal the blind except Jesus. Now, it's true physically, and we're going to look at how he physically heals the man but before the end of John chapter 9, Jesus is talking about spiritual blindness. He's using physical blindness and the healing of physical blindness to teach us about spiritual blindness. Jesus alone holds the cure. Years of being in this condition. I mean, this man had spent his entire life, he was born blind from birth. I want to take a, this is the only rabbit trail I'm going to run this morning because I want to talk about the blind man and I want to, I want to look at the, the narrative of the story. But I, I want you to consider what the disciples asked. The disciples asked this question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What a stupid question. It's stupid, first of all, from the parents' perspective, as if God would smite a child with blindness because of the sins of his parents. Even though the Old Testament references the concept of generational curses and the actions of parents having influence on the actions of their children, 
Nowhere, anywhere does it ever teach that God smites children with sickness because of the sins of their parents. Like, where the disciples even came up with this is nonsense. Siri, that's twice she's done that to me in the last month. You couldn't hear what she said, but she said, that's good preaching. (laughs) And then, consider how stupid the question is, did the child sin? The baby wasn't even born. He was born blind. So, was somehow this person... Did God know ahead of time this child was going to sin and decided to make it be born blind consequently? It's just such nonsense. And here's the important lesson for us, and I'm going to get back to my sermon. Christians, followers of God, we too battle a degree of spiritual blindness. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you see. Not everything. And it would do us well to be humbled and remember that. I remember in my younger years, I really thought I knew everything. I really did. And as I matured and came to see, the more I came to see, the more I realized I needed to quit being so arrogant about everything I thought that I knew. And there was a point in my life where I'm like, my, I was wrong about this, I was wrong about this, I was wrong about this, I was wrong about this. What else am I wrong about? You know, so I'm like, okay, I better come at this with a little bit more degree of humility and stick to the main things that I know for a fact are true in the Word of God. There are some things that we absolutely must be, dogmatic's the right word for it about, unmoving, unwavering. Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross and shed His blood for the sins of mankind, was buried in a borrowed tomb, rose from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave. Heaven and hell are the only final two destinations of the soul. Jesus is coming back for His church. There are some things that absolutely, clearly the Bible teaches. But there were other things that are really kind of a little more gray that I used to think I saw it all so clearly and There's a lesson here when we see even Jesus' closest disciples that walked with him, listened to him, were able to sit with him after every sermon and say, tell us more, Jesus. Even these guys had a degree of spiritual blindness. And so as Christians, we need to continually be asking God to open our hearts. Back to our text, right? So Jesus is the cure. Years of being blind, born this way, His parents couldn't help. His friends couldn't help. His community couldn't help. The doctors couldn't help. And what I want you to see is that one single meeting with Jesus could do in a moment of time what a lifetime of everything else could not. And that is the truth about Jesus. When you really come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, He can touch your life and change you in one moment of time and do for you what an entire lifetime of earthly help could not provide. The fact that this man was born this way, it, it does show us this bigger picture of that God's trying to teach us we see the man has the characteristics of the lost sinner who was born as a lost sinner. You know, we're born sinners. 
And I personally believe that there's an age of accountability, that age when you become conscious that you are a sinner, that we, at that time, we have to, we, we are guilty before God and we have to respond. But as a young child, you know, as an infant, as a toddler, the, while I believe infants and toddlers that die in that young age, if they go to heaven, they are still sinners. We're born that way. You don't have to teach your children to be selfish. They just are. Isn't that interesting? You don't have to teach your children to lie. It's just inherently in them. It's just there. Like, why was that in you? Mommy and daddy haven't lied. We haven't taught you to lie. We, where, where did that come? The answer is sin. It's inside of us. We are born sinners. We see that the man was blind. Multitudes of places, the unsaved are considered blind. That is a word that is used for the lost man. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it kind of takes it even further, and it says that the, the natural man, that's the man that's unsaved, just the earthly man, it says that the natural person does not accept the things of God. He can't accept them because they're spiritually discerned. It even uses the word foolishness in this chapter to talk about the way that earthly people think about spiritual things. It's just foolishness to them. It's like nonsense because they cannot comprehend those things. He was begging. The unsaved is a poor person in God's sight who is a beggar. He, and, and, and spiritually speaking, the sinner might look wildly successful in the eyes of the world, but according to God, he's still a beggar trying to satisfy the needs of his soul, only to find that no matter how much wealth he has, no matter how much influence he has, no matter how much power he has, nothing of this earth can ever satisfy the longings of the soul. We see the man was helpless. He could not cure himself, and there was no one else that had a cure for him. We see the way that Jesus saves a sinner when we look at the cure here. First of all, note that he came to the man in grace. Uh, Jesus came to where this man was. So it is with God. He will come to us in our time of need. He will make himself known to us in our time of need. And he will give us a way to him. So Jesus provides this pathway for this man to be healed. And I want, us to, I want you to note something. Notice that he irritated the man. You ever had a speck of dirt in your eye? It's irritating. Imagine getting like a, you know, a lump of clay pushed in both eyes. Jesus does something that would make the man want to respond. And there's a great lesson for here. Because while we're looking at physically, Jesus did the same thing in his preaching. Quite frankly, Jesus' preaching was so irritating that he irritated people to the point they eventually killed him for it. Now, why? Why would Jesus irritate somebody? The answer is simple. Because it makes us want to do something about it. And brothers and sisters, this is so important for our preachers, our teachers. If we're really going to see people saved, if we're going to see people's lives changed, there must be a degree to which we irritate people when we preach. 
not simply for the purpose of making people mad or irritating them, but for the purpose of wanting to produce within them the desire for change. If we are not ever irritated with ourselves, if we are never irritated with the sin that's in us, we will have no motivation to change it whatsoever. And this is one of the primary reasons that we are experiencing such a decline in Christianity is because very few are preaching the truth of the Word of God and churches, for the most part, have become this great big meeting where we just try to make people feel good. And we think if we can make everybody feel good, they'll keep coming and the church will grow. Sometimes that's true, Sometimes it's not, but the goal isn't to feel butts in the seat. Just because the church grows in numbers doesn't mean anybody's been saved. And we won't see people's lives changed if there is not a degree of irritation where they're like, I've got to do something about this. I want to be cleansed. I want to be right with God. Now, I want to say that this is also something that if it truly works, it's also something just like God giving sight to the blind. It's something that truly only the Spirit can do. I'm not talking about irritating somebody mentally, making them mad for the sake of making them mad. That's what a lot of Christians do, by the way. I know Christians that are irritating as all get out. And I mean this seriously. Never saved a single soul in all their life. But by golly, they know how to make you feel small and stupid. That's not what I'm talking about. That wasn't what Jesus was after here, folks. And really, it comes down to a matter of the heart. Like, you know. You know and God knows if you're just trying to make people feel small and stupid. And if you are, shame on you. Not only are you not going to win anybody for the Lord, but you're going to do damage to that person for the sake of Christ. But you also know if in the depth of your heart you really truly are trying to see somebody change. And you recognize sometimes you got to say the hard things. People won't respond to, to change if they don't even recognize there's a need for change. And so dealing with that sometimes is hard. Which brings me to my next point here about Jesus showing us how he saves the sinner. He doesn't just irritate the man for the sake of irritating him. He cures the man by his power. Jesus gave him a solution, and the man proved his faith, what little faith he had by doing what Jesus told him to do. This is the amazing thing. Ultimately, we're going to see this man being saved, but it all started with this, like, I don't understand it all, but I'm going to do what God tells me to do. And Jesus heals the man with his power. And finally, notice that the cure glorifies God. We're going to move on now, and we're going to see this. That when God touches you, when God saves you, when God changes your life, it is for His glory and it needs to bring glory and honor to Him. But we're going to see not everybody is happy about it. Which brings me to my second observation this morning, that the true touch of Jesus, it brings controversy. Let's advance our story in verses 13 through 34 here. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. 
Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So it was a day of worship. Um, it was church day. So the Pharisees asked again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know from where he comes. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. That's a real important line there that you need to know. The Word of God says, God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a, blind man, of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. The number of people who are happy for you when Christ touches your life is really few. I mean, you'd be surprised. You'd think, well, everybody would be happy for the guy. No, they weren't happy for him at all. Not even his own parents would stand up for him. Why? I want to deal with that in this point. Why? Why is there controversy when the Lord touches somebody's life? It's not because 
people weren't happy for his change. It's not because people weren't happy, you know, that he wasn't no longer blind. But it's what it means when we confess Jesus is the one who saved us. You see, Jesus is exclusive. And anybody who really knows the teachings of Christ knows that Jesus said, I'm the only way. Jesus clearly said he was the Son of God and that nobody, not a single person on earth was going to get to heaven that didn't come through him. He said, I am the door. You want to get into God's fold? you got to come through me. He said, I am the way. There's only one path that leads to God. It's through me. He said, I am the truth. There's not other, I'm not one of many truths. If you want to know what truth is, I am the truth. He was exclusive. And this is what drives people nuts. They're fine with you being healed. Great, good for you. Could you just keep your mouth shut about it and let it be between you and however it happens? Oh, you are delivered of alcoholism. Good for you. Just keep your mouth shut about it and keep it between you and however you think that happened. Oh, God did a great work in your life. Okay, great, great. But just keep that between you. But when all of a sudden I'm professing, no, I was healed by the only one who can heal. I was saved by the only one who can save. And there is only one way. You'll find all of a sudden people are like, no, shut up with that. You see, the Jews had already decided that anybody who said Jesus was the Christ, in other words, the Messiah, God's Son, anybody who said that, they were going to be kicked out of the synagogue. The synagogue was uh, the word for church then. What, what we would call it. It would be like being banished from this church. If you're a member of the church, you're banished. You know, we also see here the powerful influence that sometimes even our own religious friends can have on us in the wrong way. We see that our desire to be accepted by a, by a circle of peers, friends, can be so powerful that we will be willing to sin against God even with our religious friends, all for the sake of maintaining fellowship. His parents, they, they just they didn't want to be kicked out of their church. I mean, they'd been there their whole life. And even though their son had just been healed from blindness, even they knew that Jesus had did it, they knew the whole story. They're like, well, we're not going to talk about that. Uh, he's not a boy anymore. He's a man. Ask him. You know, we all must guard ourselves against the same thing. What most people fear isn't necessarily being kicked out of, like, let's let's use us, for example, right? I'm preaching to us and those who are watching online, but I'm preaching to us this morning, right? So let's just talk about us. It's so so highly unlikely that anybody here under the sound of my voice is going to be kicked out of the church by me or any of the elders. But, But that's not really what your fear is. Your fear is being kicked out of your group. And you're going to find sometimes as a Christian, your group, guilty of gossip, guilty of saying and talking about things they shouldn't be saying and talking about, guilty of being mean-spirited towards certain people, unforgiving, bitter, angry, whatever it may be. And you'll find at times you deal with the same pressure 
Like, I don't want to lose my group. So I'm just going to laugh. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to get through this one. And then all of a sudden we begin the habit of compromising things that deepen our soul and our spirit. We know they're wrong. We know we shouldn't be doing this. We know we should be saying something. But we are so fearful of losing our group that we decide that we would rather keep our group than keep our relationship with God like it needs to be. And there, there's a part of all of us, brothers and sisters, we've got to guard our hearts against this. So they asked the man repeatedly, He's the only one that will tell them the truth. Everyone else is beating around the bush. Parents are like, eh, we don't really know what happened. Um, You're going to have to talk to him. And the son simply told what he knew. I love it. Like, well, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I know this. I was blind, now I see. I know this. Never been hurt anyone else doing what just happened to me. I know this. God doesn't hear sinners. God doesn't do that type of work through sinners. You know it too. He just told what he knew. And I find it fascinating that the simple-hearted believer knows more about spiritual truth than the unsaved, educated theologian. And we have a lot of unsaved, educated theologians. People that, just like the Pharisees, can talk this book in circles and sound really wise. But at the heart of it, they're still blind as a bat. They don't really have a clue what they're talking about. I've talked with multitudes of them. Man, I've talked with some of the wisest earthly people that just, you know, sound like stinking Albert Einstein. They can talk about this thing from back to from the front to the back and, and, and find themselves really impressed with themselves because they know I'm a pastor who knows the word, and they're like, oh, they're able to have conversation with me. And, it, and, and I'm just telling you, I've sat with a handful of them, and it's like, man, this dude is blind as a bat, but he sure is proud of himself. He thinks he sees like crazy. And talk this book in circles, but doesn't live it. Doesn't have a life to follow the very Christ that he thinks he knows something about. And here we see this simple, uh, this simple man saved, literally had more spiritual knowledge than all the blind Pharisees and religious leaders of his day. When God reveals himself to a person, when God opens the eyes of the blind, all of a sudden we see what the blinded cannot. And immediately, immediately have a very real degree of spiritual knowledge that some of the greatest professors, college professors if we want to call them that, know nothing about. There is a spiritual eye by which the invisible things are discerned. There is a spiritual ear by which we hear the Holy Spirit speak. Well, that was not the case of these people throwing this man out of the synagogue who had did nothing wrong but got healed and then honestly answered what he believed. These men were blind and deaf spiritually. It's a terrible state to be in, but what's even worse is that most often those that are in this state are unconscious of it. They have no idea that they're blind. In fact, they think they're the greatest seers that there are. They have no idea that they're deaf, but they think to themselves they are the greatest hearers that there ever was. 
utterly unconscious of their state. And then there are those that do know that they're, you know, they're, there's a degree of consciousness that they're blind. And, it's, and I believe that it's these people that God actually has, has uh, what I would say, um, ground with. It's those that have this degree of consciousness that's, I'm not really where I need to be, and I need God's help to get there. It's that heart and it's that mindset that God can work with. But to have eyes that do not see is a dangerous thing. Multitudes around us are in this sad existence. I call him the poor rich man. He has so much, but really he has so little. Often those who know most about the secular know least about the sacred. Some of the wisest people on the planet, I mean people who study stars that are a hundred times larger than the earth and study the inner smallest pieces of a cell and everything in between and somehow miss the God who created it all. They're blind. They need their eyes opened. Ephesians 4.18 speaks of those who having their understanding darkened are alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. This is no new thing. It's been going on since Jesus' day and it's happening in ours. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. These men were fools and they thought themselves to be so wise. They were utterly poor but they actually thought they were rich. They were so hypocritical. They actually thought they were sincere. It's amazing what blindness will do to a person. And ultimately, that blindness, it comes from pride. Pride is the great creator of darkness. The unwillingness to humble ourselves and acknowledge how little we know and how desperately we need the creator of heaven and earth to give us sight to see. I want to plead with our young people this morning. You be, you be overly and utterly cautious with what you believe when it comes to spiritual matters, the origin of the earth, what is morally right and what is morally wrong. You be very, very, very careful what you believe listening to today's modern-day teachers. I'm talking the teachers that are filling our classes at the public school level all the way up through college. Because generally speaking, you're listening to a whole bunch of blind people who have no clue what they're talking about. There is controversy that comes when Jesus truly touches a person. That's the first thing this man found out. The whole world wasn't rejoicing. Instead, they're all trying to figure it out. They're all upset. Eventually, they kick the guy out. Number three this morning, notice that there is a confession that must be made. 
In the last few verses, we see Jesus come and find this man, and he finishes the conversation with him. Let's look at it. Six final verses here. Beginning in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Jesus told those Jews, if you really were blind and you really couldn't see what was going on here, then you wouldn't be guilty. But the fact is, you even said with your own mouth that you see. And so you are guilty. Guilty of spiritually being blind. You see what I've done for this man. You've seen me raise the dead. You've seen me give sight to the blind. You've seen me heal the lepers. You've you've seen it all. And still you refuse to follow me. And you say you've seen it all. So yeah, you stand guilty. But to the man. I want you to note what Jesus says to the man. I want you to note how it all happens in a day, but I want you to note the progression of this man's knowledge of Jesus. The first thing that he says about Jesus is in verse 11, and he simply says he was a man called Jesus. They said, who healed you? A man called Jesus. So he knew about this man who was called Jesus, no doubt, He'd heard about all the miracles, no pun intended, but he hadn't seen any of them. He'd heard about them, but he was blind. And then all of a sudden, this man called Jesus showed up, and that's what he knew him as, the man called Jesus. Well, the, they further question him, and they say, so who do you say he is? And he says, he's a prophet. The Jewish people uh, would have considered that to be um, a spiritual person that God had favor with, that, that obviously had miracle power that the average believer did not. And so he went from he was a man called Jesus to he's a prophet, clearly somebody that, you know, had power with God. And then he goes from a prophet to calling him a man of God. He says, we know that a man who's not from God couldn't do these things. And so the insinuation is this guy is clearly a man of God. And then in his final confession, he's he's called the son of man. That is a term that would have been understood to mean the Messiah, the Christ of God, the son of God Almighty. And there's this progression where it's like, he's a man called Jesus. No, he's somebody that actually had power with God. No, he's God's a man. That's who he is. Wait, no, he's more than that. He's the son of God Almighty. 
Now, this is really important. Because it was this confession and it was this moment where he put his faith and believed in Christ where the man truly becomes saved. And I cannot overexpress how important this is. God touched him, healed him, and gave him his sight, and he still wasn't saved. God can and does show people favor, sometimes heal people, sometimes do miracles in their life, but that does not mean that you're saved. This is a great mistake that we often make as Christians. I shared it in the first service but I can think of no personal greater example than what happened with Brother Kevin Wilkes. Kevin, before God delivered you of your alcoholism, I didn't know in the first service, how long were you a drunk? About 10 years. And the longest that he ever went without drinking, all, and he'd wake up and start drinking beer in the morning and drink all day long and pass out at night drunk. About the longest he went in 10 years without that happening was about a seven-day span. So... Ten years as a drunk, like the true definition of an alcoholic, physically addicted, where your, your body begins to need it. His sister shows up one day as he's at home, passed out on the couch, and prays over him to be delivered of alcohol, and Kevin was delivered of alcohol, woke up that next morning without a desire for alcohol, with no shakes, with no physical addiction to it, and has since that day never, ever, ever touched a drop, drop, drop of alcohol. He was delivered miraculously that day. And that's God. God deserves praise for that. But the church made a massive mistake in assuming that just because God touched a guy, that meant he was saved. And so rather than leading him to Jesus and truly bringing him to a place where he had to repent of his sins and be born again, it's just like, hey, the guy's free of alcohol, man. So we're going to tell you what to do. You, you go to church now. Kevin goes to church. Pay your tithes. Kevin pays his tithes. Do the things that Christians do. Kevin does the things Christians do. There was a great big problem. He had been born again. And that we have got to understand this. That just because you've had an encounter with God, just because God's made himself known to you, the demons believe and tremble, folks. There must be a conscious turning away from your wicked ways and truly surrendering your heart to God. And Kevin did what was utterly predictable for a sinner pretending to be a Christian. Eventually, the devil got a hold of his heart. He saw some wicked stuff happen inside the church. It's like, well, if this is what happens in church, I don't want anything to do with it. And spent about a decade of his life angry at God, angry at the church. Until one day, God actually did get a hold of his heart. Truly, the Holy Spirit took up residence in his life. The man became born again, and it's been an evidence ever since then that his life has been changed because God saved him and put God's nature in him. It's really important we understand this. This man becomes saved when he truly confesses Christ as Lord and turns to him in faith. And this is ultimately what Jesus was after. It wasn't just healing the man of his blindness. And you know, there are times that God actually needs to 
does need to do something in somebody's life so that they're capable of turning their heart to the Lord, so that they're capable of surrendering. So, I mean, sometimes God opens the Red Sea, if you will, and sets us free from our slavery so that we are free to choose him or not. But there still must be that free choosing to turn our lives to the Lord. As our worship team gets in place, I want to I consider something that's fascinating to me. In the same passage, everybody's looking at the same story. Everybody sees the same evidence. Everybody hears the same thing. And you got one man who turns his heart to the Lord and his life has changed. And then you got a bunch of other guys who are angry and hateful. And it's fascinating to me that the same light that can change one person's life can cause somebody else to become angry and hard. And I've watched it happen over and over and over again in my life as I've preached. I've watched at times the Word of God as it goes forth melt a person's heart, and and they are absolutely, truly, completely changed, and it was like, God was moving, and they received it, and they'd never been the same since. And in the same exact service, somebody else, their heart gets hard, and they're like, I ain't going to hear that. That preacher can't say those things. And their heart gets hard to the Word of God, and they leave angry. And here's the danger of that. The more that you say no to God, the harder your heart becomes. The more that you get in the habit of the Holy Spirit dealing with your heart, and you're like, well, I'm not going to deal with it right here, not in front of these people, not in front of my husband, not in front of my wife, not in front of my kids, not in front of my parents, not in front of my friends, not, not in front of anybody. The more that you do that, the harder and harder your heart becomes, and it starts to become a way of life. Where have you, you conditioned yourself that it doesn't matter what God's doing in you. You don't care if God's speaking to you. You don't care if God's dealing with your soul. You're going to walk out on God. You do that over and over and over again. The harder and harder and harder your heart becomes. This morning, I want to challenge my brothers and sisters here that are saved and born again, I want to challenge us to remember that just like the disciples, all of us still need the help of seeing. And we need to be humble, and we need to ask God to give us spiritual sight, and we need to not think we know everything. We need to be reminded that pride is the great creator of darkness. And I want to challenge us to be praying for our church services, for our pastors, for our teachers, praying for one another that when we, we are bold enough to share our faith, that, we, that there's a sense of dependency upon God, like, God, you've got to open the eyes of the blind. And I want to challenge us this morning, those of us that are saved here, I want to challenge us to think and meditate for just a few moments on the fact that God opened your eyes. God opened your blinded eyes. <laughs> Where 
where would you be had he not? You couldn't have just chosen to see. But God opened your eyes and you did choose to respond. But God opened your eyes. You would have never responded had he not opened your eyes. And Man, this morning we might just need to thank God and worship him for that. And then I want to challenge you that are here this morning and you don't know that you're right with God. Quite honestly, you probably do know. You actually know you're not right with God. I just, I, I, I plead with you. In Romans 12, Paul uses the word, I beseech you. It says, I beseech you, brethren. It's actually a word that means beg. I think there are times that we need to plead with people. I plead with you. I beg you this morning, please, if the Holy Spirit is dealing with your heart, please do not leave without coming to God. I promise you, your heart will most likely get harder as you say no over and over and over and over and over again. You do not know neither when the patience of God will run out. God will say, I gave you a time and again and again and again. And every time you knew I was speaking to you, you said no. You've got to care more about your own soul than you care about what somebody thinks what I think or what he thinks or what she thinks or what your husband thinks or what your wife thinks or what your parents think or what your kids think or what your friends think. You've got to care about your soul more than that. And if the Holy Ghost is dealing with your heart, come to him this morning. Kneel before God and just say, God, I'm a lot like that blind man. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do hardly, but I know that you are speaking to my heart and I just want to respond. And whatever it is, God, the answer is yes, Lord. You have my life. I will follow you. I will live for you. I will obey you. I will turn, Lord, from my own ways. This morning, I just, I I plead with you. If you are here and you're not right with God, I plead with you. As we begin to worship here in just a moment, as we begin to sing, come and get right with God.